Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mix Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode 317. And with that number, I will go back to the, <laughs> get this, the 317th win in U.S. Women's National Team history. Why is that one significant? Well, it's the only time in the history of the program that the U.S. conceded four goals and still won the game. It was a crazy 5-4 game in spring 2008 against Australia, and two of the goals that the U.S. conceded were actually own goals, but they still won 5-4, so way to go. And, of course, I've been on a little break longer than I anticipated uh, because of the crazy time in Texas, but things are settling down, slowly returning to normal. I uh, want to give a shout-out to... Anyone who donated to the Dynamo Dash Players Fund, that all went to the Houston Food Bank. And if you have any concern or want to do anything for anybody in the state of Texas, um, you know, I would check into United Way or specifically to Houston, the Houston Food Bank. Um, Those of you in colder climes might be thinking, what the hell? It's just a winter storm. Well, it was a little more than a winter storm. It was more about no power and water, and there's still people without power and water. So anyway, getting off the soapbox, moving on to this week's episode. First segment, great chat with Julia Poe from the Orlando Sentinel. She covers both Orlando City SC and, of course, Orlando Pride. And she got to be on site for both of the U.S. games against Columbia last month, or rather January and all of the She Believes games. So we talked about She Believes, um, all the games, not just the USA games. We talked about the recent announcement of the U.S. allocations, talked a little bit about Orlando Pride. Really enjoyed having a conversation with Julia. And then the second chat is with the new goalkeeper coach for the new Kansas City NWSL franchise, and that would be Allie Lipscher. She played at Duke, then went on to play two seasons in the WPS, and since then has been coaching. Uh, So really excited to see another former player pulled into the coaching ranks in NWSL. Had a really fun chat with Allie. And of course, between those two chats, there is a Jen's Planer segment on, I'm going to explain kind of like allocation spots, international spots, just some kind of roster details for NWSL. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at MixZone with two X's or at KeeperNotes or both. Um, and of course, you can always check out KeeperNotes.com for all kinds of great Woso content. All right, Jen Cooper, the Keeper here with Julia Poe from the Orlando Sentinel, the soccer beat writer for that paper. So you have been just overloaded with live soccer, Julia, and and most of us are very jealous about that because there just hasn't been a lot a lot of live soccer for for people to experience. Uh, so you had last summer you had the MLS back MLS's back tournament in, in Orlando in the bubble. Then January, the two Columbia games in the camp for the US women. And then this month she believes. So, you know, what, what kind of training regimen are you doing? What's, what's your diet to, to, to keep up with all of that? Let me tell you, it's, <laughs> it's been a lot, a lot of, a lot of hydration. I'm known for drinking a lot of energy drinks in the press box. Um, and <laughs> it's always very quiet and I always open it and try to 
open it quietly and it's just very loud when the top clicks <laughs> off and everyone looks at me and they're like, oh, Julia's caffeinating. Uh, but yeah, it's I, amazingly, it's even more. I mean, there was a CONCACAF tournament in there. There's There's been so many oh, yeah. recently. Yeah. And, and we're just, I mean, we're grateful for it here. We've got the Canadian Olympic qualifiers coming up next month. Um, and it's just been nice. You know, it, it, it really is what a regular schedule would look like for us in non-pandemic times and it feels kind of crazy but Orlando does always attract this kind of um not quite to this level but a pretty high level of attentions and tractions and games so it's kind of nice to have that feeling of uh normality in terms of at least work life right now even if we're having to do some some parts of it different well and I had some people ask me when she believes was announced, they're like, well, why wouldn't they do this in Houston? You know, I was like, well, why would you change the location that has already proven, you know, to be a decent bubble, right? You already have mm-hmm. the infrastructure, the medical staff that have been through it a couple of times. And, you know, Orlando, it's like resort central, which means plenty of hotel rooms, plenty mm-hmm. of soccer fields all in one place. And hey, and as luck would have it, one of the states that didn't freeze last week <laughs> exactly <laughs> so it, it, it's like and it's also you know when one of the reasons i, I know that canada is having the, their qualifiers there because their qualifiers are against bermuda and hey it's it's great location when you're talking about all of the the other Concacaf nations in the caribbean right you know so it, it, it's like it's a it's a nice kind of meeting point for that and also that like ideal size stadium where it's not too big and it's not too small and it's all mm-hmm. new, you know. So, so you got um, all all three she believes match days. So that's six games in a week. Um, I want to hear some of your thoughts on, you know, not just the U.S. performance, um, but also Brazil under Pia, Canada under new head coach Bev Priestman, Priestman and Argentina, who was a, a late replacement for Japan in the tournament. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, my first thought was just, I was impressed at the quality that all four teams brought because, um, you know, I started kind of tempering my expectations when we started seeing some of the Canadian players that weren't going to be available. And when Japan pulled out, I was like, okay, I'm not sure what this is going to look like. Uh, We had just come off of those Columbia friendlies, which were very lopsided, Um, you know, in terms of usefulness for the u.s women's national team they were probably very useful but not necessarily the most um aesthetic soccer to watch just when a team is getting overpowered to that level um and this tournament was really competitive it wasn't super high scoring but there were enough goals to keep you know it interesting for the casual fan and i was i was honestly very impressed especially by yeah i felt like i knew what to expect from brazil and the u.s but canada and argentina did stick out to me as even though i know both of them kind of faltered in their last uh day of games both of them stuck out to me in, in, in the first night especially well in argentina you know it has to be said before this tournament they hadn't had a game in mm-hmm. more than a year right canada it's been i think it had been a year um and it, it was really Bev Priestman's first opportunity to to get players out there. And and of course, we also have to note that uh, there were players who were unavailable uh, because their clubs chose to hold them back, which normally wouldn't be allowed during a FIFA window. But FIFA made an exception 
for this window and and the and the next window because of uh you know covid travel restrictions depending on where players are coming to and going front you know um so you didn't have Ashley Lawrence or Kadisha Buchanan for Canada. You didn't have Formiga for Brazil, right? Um, right. Yeah, and and then of course Christine Sinclair and Diana Matheson, Aaron McLeod held up for injury. Canada losing uh, Kaylin Sheridan in the first twenty minutes, right? Um, and of course, you know, you know, no Tobin Heath, no Samantha Mewis for the USA. But of course, the USA is so deep; it's not like you know, it, it, it made a difference, but I, I did like that we had, um, you know, a different kind of Canada in there, right? Like, and anytime you've got a new coach, it's, it's, there's going to be a new approach. I love anytime we play a team that's coached by Pia Sundaga, right? Like, cause mm-hmm. our history with her goes way back. And, and I think Brazil is going to go far with her in charge. And, I also heard people talk about it's like oh you know it's not going to be as competitive because it's Argentina it's a shame you know it's it's like hey it's COVID times you just have to you know like whatever it's you know it's all good and it and it's great for Argentina when you think about it as as much as it might be hard to watch them you know lose six zero it's like to get that opportunity to come to this tournament you know those facilities to play against three really great teams that they normally wouldn't have an opportunity to be in a tournament like that, that, that I think would be huge developmentally for their, their roster. Definitely. Definitely. And I mean, they, they almost took a point off Canada. I mean, they were I know inches and minutes away from that. And that was in particular, that was, I, I said this throughout the last few days, but I, I thought that that game really showcased what they can do. And if I, was the Argentinian team, I'd be looking back at that game and being like, okay, there's a lot to take out of that performance. It wasn't Canada's best performance either, but I felt like it was the one that Argentina was best equipped to take away a lot of what had been working for Canada in the past. Yeah, and they didn't even have their their top goalkeeper. She was ruled out of the the tournament for Argentina. Um, Yeah, so I I think there's so much for all the teams to take take from it. But let's, let's start... Um, let's focus on on Brazil because lots of NWSL players on that team. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, now coached by Pia, she took over what I think a year and a half ago, something like that. Mm-hmm. But of course, we we didn't we barely got to see anybody in 2020, so it doesn't seem like like that long. Um, but you know, Marta, you know, Andresinha, um, Camilla. I don't think we saw the the Brazilian that that, that the rain signed, but uh, you know it's, it's like Brazil looked really good in the first two games. I think definitely, uh, you know, like or or rather, they looked really good in the first game against Argentina, right? Slumped a little bit against against the U.S. and and had a nice resurgence Wednesday night against. Canada I was kind of wondering if we could see Canada come back because the last time those two played two years ago Canada came back from being down 2-0 to tie it 2-2 but they were just you know miss, missing their firepower but you know what what do you think about I mean let's talk about Marta you know her well you you cover mm-hmm. the Orlando Pride um, you know she just hit uh, age 35 but I, I think she's got at least another World Cup in her after this year's Olympics 
Well, the thing with Marta is that we were always joking down here that, I mean, we're going to be covering her for the next like century of our careers. I mean, she just does not seem really to lose any of her spark. Um, but I, I do think it's interesting with Brazil to see her moving into that lower position. Um, we're definitely not used to seeing her play that in the NWSL and it's still relatively new for her at the international level. And to see her, you know, adapt it's not that different of a role but it's enough of one that seeing her adapt to needing to be in the half spaces and needing to drop lower and defend more and be more of a link between the defensive side of the game and the offensive side of the game it's it's a change for her and it appeared at least to me to be helping some of her teammates even play better and I thought that that was very impactful and I think that that's going to be important for Brazil is figuring out how to, you know, it, it, Marta can't play the way that she played when she was, you know, 18, 19 for her entire life, but she um, still has so much to offer that team if they can just kind of adapt her role the way that they have been. So that was one of the most promising things out of Brazil, I thought, was just the fact that she was able to make that work. And I think we could see the difference in their final match when she left the field and Christiane came on that you know, mm-hmm. that, that, she, that that glue was no longer there. And Pia Sundaga talked about in one of the press conferences that they need more defense from her. And it's the kind of thing you're like, what? But it is kind of the natural evolution of, of a player, especially as they, they get older, not just because, well, okay, they're slow. They're not necessarily slow, but it, it's also less wear and tear on the body. And the experience, the maturity, the leadership from a player like, uh, Marta, you know, as you're talking about, can can serve the team better, you know, if if she's a little further back on the field. We we you know we saw it happen with Michelle Akers, who went from being, you know, on the front line in the '91 World Cup to being basically a defensive midfielder in the '99 World Cup. You know, same for um, Charmaine Hooper, you know, with, with Canada. So it 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 does make sense because. Uh, you know, she's got a lot of career left. And and one of the things that I like to point out when we're talking about, you know, a player who's not a U.S. national teamer, but has played this long, uh, you know, so Marta's 35. She's got uh, approximately 160 caps, right? She's been, mm-hmm. she's been playing for the senior national team since 2003, right? So 17 year career. Okay. If she had played on the U.S. national team, from 2003 to 2020, right. she would already have over 300 caps. Exactly. Right. You know, so it, it, it's like in a way because of that, that, you know, little less mileage, you know, she, she can stand to have a longer career. Uh, very similar to Formiga, who was not on this roster because PSG wouldn't release her, but Formiga became the first Brazilian, first South American player, male, female ever to hit 200 caps in December. And the only reason she was able to do that is because she's been playing since 1995, right? Like it took right. it took her 25 years to hit 200 caps where, you know, when Carly Lloyd hits 300 um, this spring, you know, she'll do it in a little over 15, right? So it's, it's, I, I just think that's, it's, it's such an important thing to remember is that not every federation plays the same amount. And a 35-year-old Marta is not the same as a 35-year-old player that has an extra 100 caps under her belt. Because, you know, I like to say it's not the age, it's the mileage. 
Right, right. Definitely, definitely. It's it's very interesting too, though, because you know you know that Marta has been putting in the mileage at the club level, but you're definitely right that just not having that additional international wear and tear. I mean, we've heard it from so many players, especially the older players, uh, you know, like Rapino and Lloyd, who have been playing just nonstop year round for years. The the pandemic layoff was almost nice for them because they just got a little yes. bit of time to breathe and and they're coming back I mean Rapino looked fresh in that last game she was she was really holding up a pace that we had not seen from her uh in, in any of the earlier games so it, it's it's interesting to see how that affects different players and the way that they're able to adapt as they do age through the game because all these players that we're talking about have so many years left in their career if they want to yeah, and, and same for the Canadian players that we didn't get to see this tournament. Aaron McLeod, Diana Matheson, Christine Sinclair, you know, some of the most capped players all time for Canada. Uh, but again, their careers, have, they got to those numbers because their careers have been so long, not that Canada plays, you know, nearly as often um, as the USA. But But I was really excited to get to see younger Canadian players get more time, right? Or some get, get first caps. Like, you know, mm-hmm. talk to me, your, your thoughts about seeing Jordan Listro, who played for Orlando as a short-term contract during the fall series and now is signed with Orlando. You know, she got her first caps for Canada. And that's huge. Definitely, definitely. I mean, Jordan is such a, such a good story. I'm really looking forward to talking to her more in uh, the next week or so about kind of the the, the behind the scenes of that. But I mean, just looking at this time last year, Jordan Listro was a a non-roster priest. She had not been able to get an NWSL contract after graduating from uh, the University of South Florida. And she worked her way through arguably one of the worst, in terms of just obstacles, worst, hardest years that an NWSL club has gone through. Um, And got her way onto that roster got her way up into a Canadian cap and played very well also in those two caps that she got in the She Believes Cup. Um, and something that I, I personally think really sticks out about Listro is that sometimes you see these young players, especially when they're new to the NWSL or, in, or international level, they will look a little scared in the midfield. Yes. And Jordan Listro, is a, she's a wrecking ball. I mean, she does not care... <laughs> She she got yellow card suspension in the fall series, like that, I, I, which is barely possible. I know. So she, she got a yellow in each of her first two games, had to sit out the third game, and then got a yellow in the last game. Uh, I love it. I mean, truly iconic behavior. Um, <laughs> but but no, I mean she. But that is something that the pride really need. They need midfielders that are willing to you know kind of put the hurt on other players. It's something that uh, Sydney Larue has talked about. It's something that a lot of these new additions like Jade Moore have talked about is, uh, you know, they're trying to just get a little sharper and a little bit more of an edge on them there. And uh, that that's the way to do it is finding players young and old who are willing to, you know, be that wrecking ball in the middle. And, you know, we also have now, you know, following She Believes, I'm so glad that we got this this data so quickly because uh, I, I was talking about it with several fans at the, the the watch party last night for She Believes. We finally know um, the allocation players for this mm-hmm. for this year, you know. And and one of the reasons I, I thought about that was 
we would have also seen, along with Jordan Listro getting her first cap, we would have seen Bianca St. George get her her first Canada senior caps in this tournament, but she was held out due to injury. But um, I want to get your thoughts on on the new allocation list. Um, you know, Bianca St. George now allocated for Canada. And, and, and I think that's huge, not just for her, but also showing that Canada is looking at, hey, we're actually going to um, allocate some new players. Their their numbers had kind of shrunk um, within NWSL, right? So, like, like I, mm-hmm. I see that as, hey, here, here's a renewed interest um, in, in this. Erin uh, McLeod getting reallocated, right? She was allocated when she played two seasons with the Dash and before that with, with the Chicago, but when Orlando signed her last year, she wasn't intended to be an allocated player, but, but now she is. So, so let's first talk about Orlando. Cause obviously that, that that's your home that the usual Ashlyn Harris, Allie Krieger, Alex Morgan, and now Aaron McLeod. So, you know, what does that allocation do uh, for the pride? Definitely. So, I mean, first with the Americans, Alex Morgan was always a given with Allie and Ashlyn, you know, I think there was the tiniest twinge of uncertainty just because right. they they have been on and off with call-ups in the last year. But I think a lot of us know that we're tempering that with the fact that they've had a major lifestyle change with bringing their uh, beautiful baby girl Sloan uh, into their family through adoption uh, this month. So, you know, that that provides just some of that stability there that would have probably been a massive upheaval for their uh, salary just line up uh, if if those three had changed in some way. With McLeod being allocated, though, it puts a really interesting wrinkle in because there's always the good things about allocation, obviously, which is um, you know having that salary taken on by the federation, uh, you know, frees up some space. It also frees up an international slot for them. So they now have two open now that Marta got her green card as well. Uh, so you know you have those positives. But the strange thing about it is that now two of their keepers are allocated. And that generally means that McLeod is going to be getting a bulk of the call-ups coming up in the next year for Canada. And I, I don't think that that was really the plan when she was brought here. I think the idea was to find the best available keeper who's not a national team keeper. And Um, you know, they were kind of walking the tightrope on that and it looked like they were walking that the right way. Um, so it's a huge personal accomplishment for McLeod. I know it was a goal of hers for a while, but it is interesting that now you're going to see a lot of attention given to Brittany Wilson, their third string keeper, who is most likely going to have to step up in a big way whenever concurrent call-ups happen in the future, especially during the Olympics this summer, that could be, you know, a, a really big thing for her. And I think it is notable that. I think this might have been coming at least for the last few months because the Pride did draft a keeper out of the NWSL draft and a pretty good one at that, um, Kaylee right. Collins out of USC. And at the time, a lot of fans were kind of head scratching over that. They were like, we, we don't need that. Now, when you look at the makeup of this team, this could be a team that needs four goalkeepers on their roster, um, <laughs> right. which is just an interesting place to be in. Um, so it's definitely a, a unique roster composition, that's for sure. Well, and I'm so glad that the league is at a place now where rosters are large enough that everyone can carry 
three goalkeepers. It was just a few years back where you only carried two and mm-hmm. you probably had a third one training with you in camp, but was not signed on a, a contract unless someone got injured and they had to be an emergency replacement, right? So it's much better situation, not only for the clubs, but also for the players that you can have a stable training situation you know you're with this club you're provided housing all that and you're getting to train with other really high level experienced keepers so if you if yeah if you're kaylee collins coming in or any young keeper you know to be able to train with ashlyn harris and aaron mcleod you know that's huge huge Well, and and Orlando has always been a very strong goalkeeper training environment. Um, You saw that with Haley Kottmeyer being here before. um, And there's there's been a whole slew of good goalkeepers that have kind of come through behind Ashlyn Harris. And I think that the work that their keeper coach, uh, Lloyd Yaxley, does on the players really provides a very formative environment for them. So it's it's definitely not a, a negative for young keepers like Kaylee and Britt to be coming into that environment. But it again, it, it is very interesting, the concept that they might need to have, you know, either four on the roster or three with a, uh, a that, that backup for the uh, international player replacement kind of slotted in there uh, for whenever that happens this summer. Yeah. So, you know, so important. Look, looking at the, the rest of the allocations, um, you know, were you surprised to see that, you know, young Sophia Smith is, is now an allocated player, Andy Sullivan for the first time, you know, basically her fourth season in the league, you know, we kind of thought as number one pick in 2018, she would have been allocated them. Um, and Christy Mewis getting back on the allocation list for the first time since 2015. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think Christy Mewis, we were talking earlier about you know how uh, Canada has also seen this with kind of bringing some new players into the allocated list. And I feel like the last year, especially during the pandemic, was a huge boost for the concept that you can play your way onto a national team in the NWSL. Uh, because we saw that with Christy Mewis. Obviously, she had um, maybe the, the best year in American women's soccer out of anyone. I mean, she was just having like <laughs> yeah. the time of her life. Um, and in terms of when you look at just personal growth, um, I will never forget her doing the whole, I never win anything um, celebrations. So, so seeing, seeing that personal growth, I, I think that that is huge. And then seeing some of the younger players, um, I know Sullivan isn't, isn't that much younger than some other players, but especially with Smith, um, I don't think it's too surprising because I think that Vlatko has always been pretty good at knowing what the fu- knowing how to balance looking to the future while also keeping things stable. And it also helps that you have some players, uh, both domestically and players who have gone abroad, who are negotiating their own salaries on their own. So they're not, especially with what happened with uh, Crystal Dunn and Lindsay Horan doing that, it frees up space. It gives wiggle room since they're able to sign directly with their clubs and they're not reliant on taking up one of those allocated places. And that's a great point, Julia, that um, there's a a new flexibility to allocations that, you know, we haven't had before this season that players can opt to decline allocation status Mm -hmm. and negotiate directly with their club. So they can, 
you know, potentially make more money. And like I said, it frees up space for other players. And what I'm intrigued to see how it works out is so with Dunn and Haran signing directly with Portland Thorns, you know, they, you know, does Mark Persons have to release them outside of FIFA windows since he has them under contract and U.S. soccer doesn't? You know, in the past, we've seen anytime the U.S. wanted to call up an NWSL player, even if it wasn't a FIFA window, the clubs would let them go because the national teamers were on contract with the national team, not with their clubs. So this is this is to me a very important shift and and the right shift to moving to the model of you know the club is your home and your national team is the reward for playing really well. Definitely, definitely. And I do think that at some point that shift will come. Um, you know, I, I cover the men's side of the game here in Orlando as well. So I, I see both sides of that in terms of how teams, uh, clubs on the men's side view releasing for international windows versus um, on the women's. But I, I do think that until it becomes the majority of players who are negotiating directly with clubs rather than allocation, because just going through this here, when, uh, when Allie Krieger wasn't on the allocated list, I mean, if she was called up, she was going no matter what. And and the club was not, was not blocking that. And that was never a question, even though she wasn't an allocated player. So I do think that that relationship is going to stay the same, but I'm very interested to see when we hit the tipping point in terms of at some point in the future, this is going to shift over to the clubs being the ones that are negotiating all the contracts and U.S. soccer will be doing things completely separate from the league without allocation. And I'm very excited for that. I'm also very hopeful that they stop calling it an allocated list when there's also allocation money because yeah. that's just getting, that's just getting so, yeah. confusing. so confusing. So confusing. Well, and, and I'm glad you made the point about, you know, like Ali Krieger, you know, called up, she's going to, she's going to go, you know? Um, and mm-hmm. that uh, for me, the important shift is that now there's, there's room for choice in the matter, right? That say it's out of a FIFA window and a player get, gets called up and they really want to go. I don't, I don't see any coach standing in their way, but at least the coach has a choice as opposed to, you know, where the coach can say, Hey, we're already down four players. We have important game this weekend. Can you play this game and fly out the morning after? Right. Like, like, like there, there can be a discussion, right? Um, because I, I've never met an NWSL coach that would want to prevent any of their players from having a national team opportunity. But I think the frustration we've seen in the past um, is when there's that, you know, like calling in players like three days before window starts. And so your players miss one extra game. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not even because they're playing. It's just because they're getting to camp early. You know, it's, it's like like those kind of tidbits. And, and that's that's the advantage. One, one of many advantages the U.S. women have had over the years is a lot of time training together, which, you know, for the rest of the world, either there's a club network, you know, and that existed and, and players were getting called up from that, or like we've seen with Argentina and other countries, just like, well, they're just not, you know, getting any chance to play together. You know, could you imagine what Brazil would be if they had had 
all the regular camps that the oh U.S. women, you know, have had. But yeah, I, I think your phrase "tipping point" is is really key because it's not something that's going to happen overnight. Um, you know, all of these all of these clubs, it's it's the the landscape is evolving. It's still a very young league, right? Like as exciting as it is for me to say, oh my God, it's the ninth season, um, which means that this league will have lasted three times as long as either of the other ones. Like that, that's huge, right? But that's still so young in the scope of establishing rules and figuring out roster. You know, it's like constantly evolving. You know, we look at MLS now past its 25th year you know, and you have a whole generation that has no memory of there being a world without MLS, right? Where right. it's like, and Nibisellis is still young enough. And I'm sure uh, we still have a big core of players that have played every season of the league, right? You've, you know, like Christine Naren, Lauren Barnes, that, you know, Tori Huster, um, the players that have never had allocation, right? So, so they've always been on a pretty you know, modest salary, it's gotten bigger each year, but it's still pretty modest, right? So it's it's like those players, I, I feel like, are going to be able to tell us some great stories of the evolution of the league, right? Um, and, and and I've made this comment before. It's like, I feel like NWSL has graduated from elementary school. We're into middle school. We're still struggling with th- that transition of, you know, where's my locker? And I don't stay in the same desk all day and I have different teachers, Right. But I'm maturing. Right. And pretty soon I'm going to be ready for high school. Definitely. definitely. Right. But, but, but yeah, it's, it's, it's high drama time. We're teenagers now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the interesting part of it too. Cause when you look kind of at, I think it's interesting because you're kind of watching MLS go through the process um, a little bit before, you know, so they're, they're kind of a little glimpse to the future of, uh, what things, what hurdles, what different uh, possibilities could be coming up for the NWSL. And they're very different because the women's sports landscape is so different than the men's. And the type of interest that is available for women's soccer is just so unique. Um, but it is interesting. I, I can't wait until we hit that 25-year mark uh, that MLS hit last year for the NWSL. And we can kind of look at what that's going to look like. Because even just making the jump up to having 12 teams by next year feels like such a big deal. Um, and yeah, there's just, it, it just feels like there is kind of a, a large wave of, of milestones coming in the next few years. Yeah. That, that'll be the first time we've ever had a women's league, um, including NWSL with more than 10 teams, right? NWSL has had 10 in the past, you know, we'll be back up to 10 to be at 11, 12, that, you know, that's going to be huge. And and I've, I've pointed out to people too about, about MLS's history, especially when Boston had to fold in, in early 2018. They're like, oh my God, oh my God. And I was like, hey, when MLS was the exact same age, they they cut two teams because mm-hmm. they, they knew like, you know, to save the league, we need to make this business move, right? And within four or five years they went on an expansion streak of, you know, Chivas, Salt Lake, Toronto, Seattle, Portland, Vancouver, you know, like, um, 
so it's kind of like we're it, not that it's the exact same thing, but but I think it's it's similar in, in terms of of growth, where it's like mm-hmm. it sucked at the time, right? I, and I know it sucked for Western New York Flash fans to lose their team that had just won the title, right? But I'm so glad that the Salem family had the wherewithal to say, "Hey, we want to stay in women's soccer. We want to keep supporting this team." we don't have the resources to continue down this path, right? Because they saw that and their soul is just going to keep growing in such a way that more and more money would need to be spent, right? So I love that there was, a sale was able to be made and the Salins family was able to stay connected with North Carolina, right? Like they paid a sponsorship to that stadium, right? Or Bill Predmore bringing in uh, OL Group um, Mm -hmm. as a primary investor for the rain because he said, I think at the beginning of last year, yeah, he's like, I'm spending double now what I spent in 2013 to run this team. And that's not a bad thing at all, but not everybody's got that money to spend, right? And, And all of the investors that we're starting seeing kind of following the angel city model, right? Like Washington spirit, bringing on additional investors and, you know, uh, the new Kansas city owners. So it's a very, very exciting time. Well, so Julia, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me and wander around all of these women's soccer topics as, 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 as I tend to do. And, um, I hope you stay hydrated because I know you've got a lot more live soccer coming to Orlando. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on. Time for a little gensplaining. Today's topic, roughly individual rosters, international spots, allocations, just some roster notes. Let's call it roster notes. Because we're about a little over a month away from the start of the Challenge Cup. And... Before the Challenge Cup kicks off, all teams will have to reduce their current rosters to 28 players. That'll be further cut down before the regular season starts in May. But let's think about April 9th when Challenge Cup kicks off. A few days before that, all rosters will be cut down to 28 players. Each team is allowed up to four international spots. And by international spots, that means a player who by virtue of their citizenship um, requires a P1 visa from the U.S. government. It means they don't have a green card, they have no claim on citizenship, or they're not an allocated Canadian Federation player. All right, so you do have international players in terms of players who play for national teams other than the USA, right? But not all of those players require an international spot. Lydia Williams, when she was still in NWSL, because her mother is American, she counts as an American citizen, does not require a P1 visa, does not require an international spot. Nicole Momiki, signed by O.L. Reign last year, was born in New York City, does not require an international slot. Um, Yuki Nagasato, however, does. Um, Trying to think of some other examples. Uh, Allie Riley, The New Zealander plays for the New Zealand national team, but born in California, does not require an international slot. So when you look at the rosters that I have up on the Woso Nerd Links rosters by NWSL Club, I highlight uh, it's pretty bright yellow to let you know it's a player who requires an international spot. And 
players who've been in the league a while, um, they'll work on getting a green card. So you'll see that Rocky Rodriguez with Portland Thorns no longer requires an international spot. So teams start each year with four, basically. They're allowed to trade. So we've seen some teams trade them away because they don't need them as much. Like we don't see a lot of international players, you know, with Chicago. So they tend to trade those slots away. Um, You can't permanently trade a slot away, but you can trade it by season. And then, of course, we recently got the list of the allocated players for 2021. We can call them allocated. We can call them federation players, which is probably the best way to do it so we're not confusing with um, allocation money. So these are the players whose salaries are subsidized. Their NWSL salaries are subsidized by either U.S. soccer or Canada soccer. So let's say Jane Campbell, Christy Mewis, new Federation players, Houston Dash no longer has to pay their salaries. But for the first time this year, national team players who are offered that option or, you know, who are extended the, the privilege of, uh, being allocated like that, being a subsidized player, they can actually decline that option and negotiate directly with their teams if they feel that they can get a better deal with their teams directly. So for the first time, we have two players who are signed that way. Lindsay Horan, Crystal Dunn, signed directly with Portland. Um, This is the beginning of the transition um, to eventually having no subsidized players, the, the league having you know, paying all of its players directly. And of course, Julie and I uh, talked about that in the previous chat. Um, And keep in mind, there may be players who are on contract with the U.S. national team who are allocated that aren't um, in the league right now. So you've got Sam Mewis, Rose Lavelle. uh, When the list came out, it indicated that if they returned to league play, that they would you know, they would be covered by U.S. soccer. Uh, We didn't see that same note for Christian Press or Tobin Heath, right? So they probably chose to decline that option. Um, And it's also important to note that Canadian players, if they're subsidized by the Canada Federation, then they don't use an international slot. But if they aren't, they might need an international slot. And a good example here is Quinn, who uh, when Quinn signed with OL Reign after the World Cup, they needed an international slot because they weren't a Canadian subsidized player. However, for 2021, Quinn is once again a subsidized player, so OL Reign doesn't have to pay that salary. Lots of information. I know it can get a little confusing. That's why I try to keep on those Google Sheets a breakdown of each player's status, whether they have signed, what the, how long their contract is, if they're a federation subsidy, if they require an international slot, if they have played for four national team, but for one reason or another, don't require an international slot. So any questions on that stuff, feel free to email me anytime, keeper at keepernotes.com.
All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Allie Lipscher, the new goalkeeper coach for the new Kansas City women's team. That Allie, Allie, I don't know what to call Kansas City other than Kansas City. Is that fine, right? I mean, like, are we going to eventually we'll hear a name, but is it okay to say, hey, the new Kansas City team? Yeah, Kansas City is perfect. That's what we're just we're just own, owning the city right now. <laughs> perfect. Well, I was excited to see the announcement. Um, you know, that, that you were hired on staff, always good to see, you know, a woman coach hired. More importantly, I mean, to me, I like seeing former um, players, you know, of of U.S. leagues hired um, and, you know, j- just kind of like continuing the the history. Right. Like I was like, yay, someone who's not just obviously serious about coaching goalkeepers, but is, it has deep roots to, to the leagues in the U S. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you on, on both of those fronts and it, it does feel a little bit full circle. Um, but it also, you know, it, it feels a little bit new in, in some ways in terms of it's, it's a different league than, than what I played in and so much has changed. So I, I agree. I would love to see more of it. I hope that I'm a part of, um, you know, everyone seeing more of it, um, but definitely exciting. Well, tell me first how you ended up playing goalkeeper. Were you the tallest kid on the team growing up or just, you know, didn't feel like running, which tended to be more my reason for playing goalkeeper? Right. <laughs> um, how how you fell into the nets? I think it was, I was definitely a, a, a tall, lanky kid. Um, but I think it was just kind of at the time, I was like eight when I started playing in goal. And it was at the time where everyone's just rotating in, right? <clears throat> and you get the kids who's like, who are like, yeah, sure, I'll do this for whatever, like 10 minutes. And, and then you rotate the next kid. And, and I was always the kid that was like, yes, like, this is super fun. I want to do this. Uh, and I'm sure everyone else on the team was like, yeah, no, super fun. You should definitely do that because I don't want to. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so ever I have I had always played in goal, you know, ever since it was kind of a kind of an option. I, 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 I gravitated towards it and I loved it. Well, one of the things that I, I enjoyed about playing goalkeeper was I, I considered it the best seat in the house, right? Um, I don't think everybody agrees with me, but but I just love that it's like how I could see everything unfolding in in front of me, right? And um, but but what what did you like best about playing goalkeeper? I did love that part of it, and I think that that actually played a big part of me becoming a coach eventually, um, which is always constantly being so analytical. Of, mm-hmm. of um, but I loved, I loved so much about it. I loved, um, I loved making saves, you know, which is what you always sort of start loving as a kid. Eventually, you know, you learn to get past how bad it feels not to make a save and get a goal scored on you. But I loved just being like that last line of defense. I, I loved being kind of relied upon in that way. Yeah. It's, it's kind of all or nothing, you know, mm-hmm. either you're the hero or the goat, you know, and yeah. not the, not the G O A T goat, but just the goat. Yeah. <laughs> Well, talk about how you ended up at Duke. That's where you played collegiately, especially coming from way the other side of the country beyond California, all the way from Hawaii to North Carolina. Yeah, that was that was a big a big transition for sure. But I I, I got to do basically through you know through the ODP system, which was which was still um, you know re- really big and looked a little bit different when as I was coming up, and that's really kind of what got me. Um, to the mainland and playing in tournaments and being seen by coaches just kind of beyond, you know, my region um, and, and was a really important part of me having the opportunity to, you know, to, to look beyond sort of the West Coast in, in terms of schools. 
And then um, coming out of college, I mean, the timing was was good that as you were graduating, we were just on the verge of, you know, mm-hmm. WPS, the, the second pro league in this country launching. So, you know, talk about how things unfolded as you were coming out of Duke. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I knew, you know, at that point there was, there was whisperings and there was plans and everything was sort of being formulated. So I was able to, to, to make the decision to pursue uh, a pro career um, with, you know, with, with some assurance that it, that it was going to happen and play out. Um, and, and so I moved to California after I graduated, literally the day after graduation, I packed up and I drove out to LA and I spent a very fun, you know, six, eight months in LA playing and, and working a lot of jobs. And um, I played with the IAX America, the WPSL team out there. And it was, it was fantastic. And, and, you know, come January, everything was in place and, and the draft happened and, and I was invited into Boston um, and everything sort of un- unfolded from there. And Boston, I, you know, the breakers in WPS, I don't, you know, I don't think a lot of current fans would remember that it was coached by uh, the late great Tony DeChico and that, that, and that you would have been playing uh goal training goalkeeper along with Alyssa Nair. So, so talk about working with those two people. Yeah, it was pretty incredible to, you know, walk into my first professional locker room uh, and you've got Tony DeChico standing there and you've got Christine Lilly standing there. Yeah, that too. (laughs) What's going here? Um, And so, yeah, that that first year um, was Alyssa's senior year, so she wasn't there until my second year. Gotcha. Um, And and it was incredible. I mean, I learned a ton from Tony. I, I learned a ton from just, you know, the leadership that was there. Um, I think that I, I describe it in that it was a pretty amazing place to sort of grow up uh, in terms of, you know, learning, learning the game at the next level um, and learning from, you know, real professionals and people that had, had been at the top of the top. It was, it was incredible. So when, you know, the league ended a couple years later, you know, what did you, you know, did you say, okay, I'm going to go into coaching or I want to try to play abroad or, you know, yeah, I playing abroad. I was in Australia. I, I sort of did that rotation um, mm-hmm. where I would play months um, in the WPS and then I would go to Australia for, for six months and live there. And literally, you know, my second season coming back from Australia, I was I had just re-signed with The Beat, who I played for my third year. And I got off the plane in Hawaii um, to sort of transfer to, to head back to, to the mainland. I turned my American phone back on for the first time. And of course, you're just, you know, you're always like flooded with text. But all of a sudden, it's all of these like what are you going to do? The league folded. Like that was kind of like, I literally got on the plane to that news and I kind of turned around and like looked at the plane. I was like, can I just get back on and go back to Australia? Like, what do I do here? <laughs> so I, I mean, I played in, I played in the WPSL elite league. That was kind of the interim league as, as um, the NWSL was organized. Um, but honestly that it took the wind out of my sails. Um, and it was, it was a lot. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've had this conversation, but it was, it was hard. That, that lifestyle was hard. You weren't making a lot of money. You were working a lot of jobs. Um, and, and it was a grind. And I think at, at that point, you know, having the opportunity to get into coaching and, and feel like um, my life was a little bit more in, in my own hands was, was really enticing. So I stepped away from, from the game at that point and just kind of, you know, dove headfirst into, into coaching. Yeah, it was it was a pretty rough end um, to WPS for for a variety of reasons that we don't need to go into. But you know, any fans that are curious, do do some googling because it that was a pretty that was a pretty hard end. And you know, and 
I remember, you know, being so relieved that there was at least WPSL Elite that that one season, 2012, between the demise of WPS and the launch of NWSL, that 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 at least helped some people carry over people that ended up, di- you know, playing NWSL long term, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you said, that that was a grind, right? That that was not you know, completely fully professional, shorter season, right? That you're just, you know, probably everyone had to make some big decisions, right? Of, of do I want to keep playing? What do I want to do? You know, how do, how do I make this work? You know, so you ultimately made the decision, okay, I, you know, I'm ready to launch a coaching career. Um, you know, so, so did you already have some coaching licenses or did that's when you started getting your coaching licenses? How did that work? Yeah, I started, um, I was actually, I started, I started down the track of like a master's at that point. Cause I, I knew that I was going to give coaching a try, but I was also like, I'm, I, I don't know if that's the end all be all. Like I, I kind of wanted to keep everything open. So I started down the path of getting my master's during that, that interim season. Um, and then, um, I had a head coaching experience before that. I was able to coach at Tufts while I was in Boston. I was able to coach, um, at Arizona during an off season, sort of in between. So I'd had, I had that experience, um, but really sort of dove into it fully, uh, at, at that point. And the coaching licenses sort of came, you know, down the road. Um, and, and then really, like I said, I was, I was just kind of hell bent on, on getting my master's. So eventually I, I ended up stepping away from, um, like an assistant coaching role and just being a GA when I moved to, I moved to Connecticut for a while and, and was, was there, was their graduate assistant so I could get my master's degree. Yeah. The college game offers a lot of good kind of learn as you go opportunities, right. Where, mm-hmm. you know, pro players and other people can be the, designated volunteer assistant coach or like you mentioned the graduate assistant coach so that you know you're um kind of doing two things at at once um Mm -hmm. you know what do you think are some of the biggest things you learned in that process as a as a college goalkeeper coach or were you i guess for graduate assistant you weren't specifically a goalkeeper that was just a little bit of everything yes yeah, it was. I mean, it was both. And I think if, if you are a goalkeeper, you tend to you tend to be the goalkeeper coach. Uh, if you have, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of how the college world works out. But I mean, honestly, I think that I think that when you're a college goalkeeper coach or when you're a college coach, you learn to be a college coach. The game is, you know, that that league is so different from any other sort of like club or professional league that you would be in. There's so much more around it being um, a part of. Uh, an institution and and all of those different sort of parts that come with it. Um, so in terms of like coaching education, like the coaching learning that you're doing are are from the other coaches on staff. Um, and then again, a lot of the learning you're doing is is how to run a camp, um, how to do a budget, you know, how to how to line a soccer field. In some in some cases, there's a lot of sort of auxiliary education in uh, in the coaching. How, did world. you have to do any of the like how to do travel arrangements? <laughs> oh yeah. I did. I remember my very first, my very first uh, away trip that I was like in charge of organizing. We got to our connection, and like our connection flight had been canceled. And I was like, oh, "That's like that's it. I can't do this." this <laughs> I was um, like five years older than than the twenty five girls standing behind me that are like, "What are we supposed to do now?" I don't know. You you tell me. What are we supposed to do now? But of course, <laughs> it worked. Yeah. you're like, "I just want to coach. Can I not do this stuff? I just want to yeah. coach." <laughs> Well, and talk about how the the opportunity came about for you to be hired by the new Kansas City team. Um, sure. I mean, I, I guess when we start to talk about, you know, 
coaching. I don't want to, I don't want to make it seem like I, I jumped into a GR world. And now that I'm here, like I, I started coaching nine years ago um, right. and I've kind of, you know, w- like really doing a lot of, a lot of work and, and being a coach in the pro league and then WSL was always the goal. Um, I always wanted to get back to the pro level and, and it really wasn't until, you know, the last couple of years that, that I felt like I really had the tools and I was ready to be able to do that. Um, so, so, you know, the last couple of years I've, I've, I've done my homework. I have, I've always kept up with the league as, you know, as a fan and, and I started to keep up with it a little bit more, um, a little bit more in depth, a little bit more analytically, just learning sort of what the ins and outs, um, you know, look like, and luckily still have, you know, teammates and friends that are in the league. So, you know, able to talk with them about what their experiences have been like. Um, and, and eventually, you know, starting to make the, the connections and have the conversations where letting people know that I'm interested and, and that, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to be a part of it. And, and eventually that leads to the right conversation. You tend to have a lot of conversations before you have one that actually leads to an opportunity. Um, but, you know, was able, was able to talk to, to Hugh a little bit about what he wanted um, after, you know, after learning that, that he was going to be the coach and and the stars aligned and and it's been it's been a really great fit so far. And how much had you been um, paying attention to NWSL? I mean, it sounds like pretty closely, um, not just from a hey, I'm coaching players that I know hope to play in NWSL at some point, but you know, just I guess with an eye to your future as well. Yeah, I mean, I had always followed it, like I said, like as as a fan, you know, just still having friends that were were playing in the league, and then having friends that were coaching in the league, and um, and, and that, and for sure, having players that you know were were interested in playing professionally at some point, um, I, I have followed it very closely. I I think it, you know, for for a long time, it it was, and and maybe arguably is the best league in the world for women. I, I'm I'm glad that that's a point of contention. Now I'm glad that other you know other countries and other leagues are really starting to to challenge us on that. Yes. Um, um, but it's it's just, it's super exciting. It's an incredibly exciting league. It's got some of the best players in the world. I don't know. How, I guess my question back is, how can you not? <laughs> Love it. Um, well, and I want to ask you some kind of like goalkeeper coach insight questions because, of course, we had, uh, you know, we just wrapped up the She Believes Cup in, in Orlando, um, you know, and got to see different kinds of goalkeeper performances, you know, from the range of, you know, Jane Campbell not really getting to touch the ball in the game against Argentina, you know, to, um, you know, Steph LeBay having some wild saves having and having to come in mid-game, um, you know, after Kaylin Sheridan goes out injured or, you know, Argentina having not being able to play their starting keeper, uh, you know, who wasn't able to make the tournament or Brazil playing different keepers. So so first I want to ask you, like, if you're Jane Campbell or a listener and you have a game where you don't see the ball very often... Um, you know, what does a goalkeeper do? What does a professional goalkeeper do, you know, to like to to stay in the game? Because I think in some ways that can be uh, more dangerous that, you know, you're not touching the ball. Sure, you're watching the game, right? Um, but like all of a sudden the ball could come to you, right? So like you're you could be cold. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's tough. I, so it's probably a little bit different keeper to keeper, but when you, when you talk about the position being mental, I think that's really where um, the most sort of tangible example of how mental it is, because that's kind of the fitness, like that's a game where you're not seeing the ball very much. Like that is a mental fitness exercise because you've still got to be able to cover the space in behind. If one pops through, you've still, you know, got to be in the right position. If your back line has to, has to retreat, um, you still have to see the field really quickly and be able to scan and have the right picture in your head to, to distribute if, and when you're, you're called on and you're right. You don't have the rhythm of a game and, and touching the ball a few times or being able to take a couple goal kicks and seeing how the team is playing in front of you to, to really have that context. So it's, it's hard. And I think that, um, that's kind of what it takes to be a professional goalkeeper. I think you know, you know, part one of the skill sets of being a professional is not being exposed in those moments because it is really easy to be. And then you know, talk about the you know what Steph LeBay had to do in that first game for Canada, where what twenty minutes in, Sheridan comes out with an injury. So you know, have you had that experience of you know you're the you're the backup keeper sitting there and suddenly. Mm-hmm. You know, you're like, ah, I need to warm up. I need to get in now. Yeah, yeah. No, I have for sure. And, and I mean, personally, it's it's just adrenaline, right? It's like, it's a little bit of that, like, oh, crap moment. Like, and then you, and then you go. Like, you have to go. You hit the ground running. And, um, and yeah, I don't know. You, you just go in and you make it happen, which is goalkeeping, right? Like, you figure out a way to get the job done. Um, <laughs> for sure. And I'm sure, you know, you're vulnerable to have, to have some mistakes um but also again like at the top level that's part of the job that's 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 some, something that you have to be ready to do that's a tool that you have to have in your tool belt um and it's not easy but it's definitely you know it's necessary because it's going to happen once in a while and then there's the mental work for the goalkeeper and i would assume you know the the coaches around her uh when you have an experience like argentina <laughs> where you know you're you're getting pummeled six zero you know, by the U S right. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's not your fault because it's, you know, the defense collapsing in front of you, you know, or, or I even think of Steph LeBay playing against Brazil, you know, Canada was missing some players and uh, Alicia Chapman was, you know, not eligible, not, not available, um, mm-hmm. you know, for that game. So it, it's like, how do you, you know, keep yourself up, you know, after you've been scored on and scored on again and scored on again. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, you, you find successful moments and I think you hang on to them. Um, you know, Steph Bay had a couple of really, really great saves in that game. Um, the Argentina was able to make a play on, you know, a, a number of opportunities yesterday and, and sure. Did the pet outweigh the good for her? Probably. But I think in the moment, like, you know, you're, you're holding on to, to a ball that you pull off the line, you're, you're holding on to, you know, a well-timed cross that you come out and get contact to. Um, and then you just, you have a short memory and tunnel vision and you focus on the task ahead. Yeah. Short memory is, is a great point. Um, you know, I remember, being told years ago, it's like you got to play every ball as if it's still a zero-zero game, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That, that that every every save you make is 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 going to be, you know, a, a difference maker. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then coming back to to Kansas City, um, I think it's it, it's interesting that you're going to be coaching somebody who I'm guessing is a good four or five years older than you, um, in Nicole Barnhart. 
mm-hmm. um, you know, one of one of so she's got the third most caps and goal. Uh, no, I guess now she's fourth behind behind Nair. But uh, you know, talk about had you ever played with or worked with um, Barney before? Um, not not worked with. No, I mean, I, and we knew each other, right? Like the goalkeeping world's pretty small. Right. Um, so, so certainly, you know, knew, knew of each other, um, but was able to connect with her before, you know, you know, after everything kind of got announced and, um, and yeah, it's been, it's been great to work with her. There's, there's as much conversation as there is coaching, you know, she's such a wealth of knowledge um, and, and she's seen so much and so many, you know, right. different and that it's honestly, it's, it's fantastic. It's great for me to have, to have her as a resource, as, as an example in a lot of ways. Um, and it's, yeah, no, it's, it's been fantastic. And then how do you, I always wonder like how, um, the pro teams, like when you're, when you're looking at a third keeper, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, now that we have the luxury of being able to have third keepers on rosters, which, you know, just mm-hmm. a few years ago, a club clubs didn't, um, you know, it's it's like you know we know there's so few opportunities for that player to get to get minutes, but you but you still need that that player, and you never know. You know, I, I think of OL Rain in 2019 that is suddenly going through <laughs> all possible keepers. You know, um, you know how do you how do you deal with the um, you know keeper rotation? And of course, it's very different from the college game where you can much more easily split time in games or, um, you know, it's, it's just a different ball game. Right. But, uh, you know, talk about what that's like in, in, in the pro game. I think it's great that, that we do have the ability to have, you know, a third, a third keeper. Cause it, it's, I mean, you, you know, this like goalkeeper is not a position where you peak in your twenties most right. of the time. It's a position that experience plays a lot. Um, a lot into and and so having the ability for younger keepers which I think is typically someone you see in that third keeper role um, to be able to learn and play at the level and gain that experience in a really meaningful way um, is super important for the growth of the position and, and being able to continually develop keepers that are you know can push for a national team spot and can you know be be a part of maintaining why the U.S. has some of the best goalkeepers in the world at, at any given time. Yeah. You always want that goalkeeper pool to be deep, even though the, the, the flip side of that means that there's a lot of people that, you know, they may be great, you know, and they're just, you're not going to get an opportunity beyond club, but at least, you know, we're now at this position now with, you know, NWSL back up to 10 teams, you know, next year, 11, possibly 12, like each, you know, adding more spots that there can, you know, that you can make a living um, Mm -hmm. year round, you know, playing goalkeeper. And, you know, and as you've experienced, it's like, okay, making a a coaching career out Mm -hmm. of it, you know, so as those new teams come on board, well, hey, that's four or five, six more (laughs) kind of coaching slash technical spots. Well, last question, last question for you, Allie. Um, you know, when you think about the goalkeepers you followed growing up, who who were one or two of your favorites were just like, you know, you'd watch them and go, Oh my God, I want to be like that. Or, or I always love, you know, just the way that that, that keeper makes saves. I mean, who, who were your inspirations? Yeah, I think, you know, growing up before women's soccer really had any visibility, I mean, I I was a Schmeichel fan. He was, you know, I like I, I grew up in <laughs> nice. 
So in terms of being able to watch many games, there wasn't there wasn't a lot of a lot of options. And when, whenever there was a game on, it was you know it was probably Man U or one of who you know who were the sort of the top top team, the reigning reigning uh, champions at that point. So so I was a Schmeichel kid. Um, and then when when women's soccer had a little bit more visibility, um, I was a big. You know, I was I was a 99er. Like the the world team, Grana Scurry, uh, saved that PK. Like she was definitely someone that was a big inspiration to me, and in sort of you know those those formative years, um, and and I think is incredible. I, you know, I was a little bit older when um, Hope sort of took the reins, so mm-hmm. was was a fan of hers, but then I had to sort of keep it under wraps because I was playing in the same league as her. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You have to kind of shed the, <laughs> shed the fangirl thing as, as you go along. But it, I think, yeah, but it was cool seeing someone that, you know, I, I like recognized as an incredibly talented goalkeeper and then, you know, seeing them in a team concept, seeing them on or con yeah, contacts, excuse me. And then seeing them on the field as well. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, being able to see a top level, like, you know, like one of the world's best ever goalkeepers to see, you know, beyond game day, right? Like I think would just kind of add the dimension to your own game of like, Oh, you know, they train like this or they do this in the locker room or just like all those little extra tidbits. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Well, and, and I love, I love that you say you're, you're a Schmeichel kid. Cause similarly, I mean, my, my first um, exposure to, you know, watching goalkeepers was the 94 world cup. And I just, you know, I fell in love with uh, the Swedish goalkeeper, Thomas Ravelli, you know, because, because again, like you said, like there, there weren't, um, you know, for me, there weren't women goalkeepers to watch, but yeah, 99 comes around and it's like, ah, Brian Scurry and so some friends of mine at the time and I was not young but uh, some friends of mine bought me the Barbie the goalkeeper Barbie from the, <laughs> the the black goalkeeper Barbie because they knew that, that I was you know very oh, Brian Scurry yeah <laughs> so yeah I mean you you have to have those goalkeeper you know like mentor is not the word right but like role models of like oh i want to be that i mean i actually said to the first person who coached me in goal i said make me thomas ravelli and they're like okay (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome that's awesome all right so actually last question for you um you know what's been your experience on the ground in kansas city so far like have you found some good barbecue <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I know you have experience with cold weather, having lived in Minnesota and Boston. Yeah. But like, mm-hmm. what's 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 been your brief Kansas City experience so far? Not related to soccer. I mean, the barbecue has been good, and I and you know, I I'm not like an aficionado by any means, which I almost like I almost hesitate to say out loud. Um, <laughs> That's okay. About it, so like, I I think everything's been great, but but I'm probably wrong on some of them. Um, <laughs> But, you know, just honestly, like within the scope of the team, the energy is incredible. Um, the, you feel the support from um, the city is incredible. Um, I remember like when I first got there, I had to buy like a bike pop or something like that. So, so I went to like the literally just like the closest bike shop and I had my little like Kansas City mask on because I just was coming from training. Um, and they were like, cool, like, you know, like you a fan of the team? Like, oh, my God, you're a coach of the team? Like this is this is so cool. Like just having someone recognize um, what is something, you know, really new. And in the city just sort of goes goes to show how 
how much the, the city itself just embraces the team and embraces women's soccer. And, and there's so much excitement and energy around it that it's, it's super contagious. So it's been really, really fun. That's got to be the best experience is having someone go, oh my God, you coach for the team and to actually know what the team is. That, that yeah. says a lot about uh, how well the new club has already kind of put its name out in, yeah. in, in yeah. the city. Yeah, well, really, Allie, really. thanks so much for taking the time to, to chat about, about goalkeeping and you know, good luck with your, your pro goalkeeper coach career. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Great to, great to talk with you. All right, time to wrap it up with the back four. First and foremost, the NWSL Almanac, the 2021 edition, is available for sale, print or PDF, or you can buy both. More than 370 pages of comprehensive NWSL statistics, game notes for every season of the league, including the Challenge Cup and Fall Series from last year. You can order the print edition or PDF uh, at keepernotes.com. And I'm also working on an Olympic soccer almanac, or specifically Olympic women's soccer almanac, so look for that later this spring. And if you want to keep up with all of the NWSL trades, player acquisitions, roster moves, I have a great Google Sheet linked at KeeperNotes.com. Just click on Woso Nerd Links, and there's all kinds of fun stuff there, including a link that has not only the allocations for the NWSL uh, you know, of national team players, but it also shows every call-up of U.S. national team players going back to 2015. And then I also have, if you haven't seen it before, a YouTube channel uh, called Woso Nostalgia. And I've recently put up a lot of new videos, mostly from Canada, but I'm constantly trying to find old school Woso videos out there that aren't already up on YouTube uh, to get out there. If you have any old videos, VHS or DVD, and it's stuff that you haven't seen on YouTube or elsewhere, if you send it to me, I will convert the file to digital uh, for you and send it back to you, but I will also share it with the world on YouTube. So if you have any old videos, seriously, even VHS, email me, keeper at keepernotes.com for more information. And last thing, mark your calendar. The 2021 Challenge Cup kicks off Friday, April 9th. The 10 NWSL clubs will be participating in two groups of five teams for the first round. And the groups are basically east-west. So your west group is Rain, Portland, Chicago, Kansas City, Houston. Your east group is Orlando, North Carolina, Louisville, Washington, Sky Blue. Teams will face each opponent in their group once. So they'll have four first-round games, two at home, two away. And then the two group winners will meet in the Challenge Cup Final on Saturday, May 9th, live on CBS. And then the NWSL regular season will kick off a week later. So we're getting pretty close to that, believe it or not. It's just about five weeks away. All right, that's it for this episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. Appreciate everyone who's listened, everyone who's emailed me about it, tweeted about it, shared it with a friend, sent feedback, etc. Of course, I want to thank my producer, Sean Ringrose, whose Dynamo podcast you can check out at anchor.fm slash Jen Orange, and that's G-E-N 
orange, like Generation Orange. And of course, want to thank the Beautiful Game Network for making this podcast possible. But now she's anybody.